Hello and welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for July 15th, 2016. I'm your host, Brian Cardile. I'm the editor of the Daily Appellate Report, a print supplement to the Daily Journal, and I'm very happy to welcome you to this week's edition of our program, which issues each Friday and features commentary from practitioners, jurists, and academics throughout California and within the Ninth Circuit regarding salient appellate issues such as impactful rulings and appellate practice tips, and we have some of both in today's show. We hear from two guests, one who successfully argued before the Ninth Circuit an environmental case that stands to have an outsized impact going forward on the rights of Indian tribes in the Pacific Northwest to continue to sustainably fish for salmon in their native waterways. Our other guest will join to offer a variety of insights meant to help appellate and indeed all attorneys prepare the perfect brief. First, John Sled. A partner with the firm Kanji and Katzen in Seattle, which specializes in representation of Indian nations, will discuss the landmark Ninth Circuit ruling handed down recently in the case of United States versus Washington. Mr. Sled spent the last five years working on the case, which was filed in district court in 2001, and which in fact relates back to litigation originally filed in the 1970s. The case centered around a series of agreements called the Stevens Treaties, which were signed in the 1850s between native tribes and the Washington territorial government. In exchange for native tribes ceding millions of acres of the Pacific Northwest, those treaties guaranteed the tribes rights to fish in perpetuity outside their assigned reservation lands in the traditional waterways where they had fished for centuries previous. But on one point, the treaties were not particularly specific. Namely, they didn't say whether and to what extent Washington had a duty to avoid the sorts of human development and environmental degradation that would cause the native fish populations to dwindle, which of course would render the tribe's right to, to fish significantly less valuable. The 1970s litigation did not resolve that question, as the court then said it would await a more concrete lawsuit raising the issue. Enter in 2001, the case for which Mr. Sled eventually became lead counsel, and challenged Washington's use of culverts, which are concrete or metal channels which divert streams and waterways under roads throughout the state. The design of many culverts caused significant hindrances for salmon attempting to traverse the streams, and significantly reduced salmon populations over the last few generations. Against Washington's contention, the Ninth Circuit held that the state was bound by the Stevens Treaty to ensure viable fish populations for native fishing in perpetuity and as a result that it would need to remedy the offending culverts. Though the ruling pertains specifically to roadway development, it's holding that the state has a duty to ensure this resource long into the future provides a a very vital precedential tool that Mr. Sled and other tribal advocates will be able to employ to help preserve Native American rights. Next, David Balabanian of the firm Morgan Lewis and Bacchius will visit the show. Mr. Balabanian is a well-known attorney in the San Francisco area and a regular contributor to the Daily Journal's columns section. Recent pieces of his have discussed the art of brief writing, and he'll explain to us in greater detail some of his most valuable tips. Specifically, he'll discuss how many attorneys tend to overlook the introduction and conclusion of their briefs, focusing rather on the heavy-duty reasoning in the middle. Mr. Balabanian describes why, considering court's overburdened nature... The entries and conclusions can be the most valuable real estate in briefs, and thus should receive deliberate attention in their own right. He'll also offer guidance on the best ways to cite persuasive authority and also how to deal with authority that's less helpful for your cause. As always, I'd like to first remind you that CLE Credit is available for your having listened to this show. You can find a link to a short true-false test on the dailyjournal.com page where this podcast appears. And with that, let's get to my conversation with John Sled. Okay, we're welcoming in now John Sled, a partner at Kanji and Katzen up in Seattle who argued the case of the U.S. versus Washington before the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals. Uh, Mr. Sled, congratulations on this result, and thanks for being on the podcast. Well, thank you, Brian, and it's my pleasure to be here. So the, the Ninth Circuit rules here that essentially the way that the state of Washington is diverting streams and waterways under under roads was was hindering the salmon population and, and other fish populations, and thus violated the, the Stevens Treaties of 1854 and 55, and, and, and so doing upheld an injunction the district court had given. Perhaps could, before we start, could you tell me what the Stevens Treaties are? Uh, well, Stevens uh, refers to Isaac Stevens, who was the first territorial governor of Washington and was also superintendent of Indian Affairs. He was sent out here 
from Washington, D.C. shortly after the territory was created to attempt to uh, extinguish the Indian claims to the land in all of Washington Territory, which runs from the Pacific Coast clear into western Montana. And uh, in really a remarkable feat, he negotiated a series of treaties to cover most of that area in a very short two-year period. Almost uh, well, all the treaties have almost identical language securing to the tribes that signed them uh, the right of taking fish at all their usual and accustomed grounds and stations. Uh, the tribes throughout the area were heavily dependent on salmon and other fish for survival, and they insisted on uh, that provision in the treaties. I understand now, from, from that time till now, there's been a fair bit of contention between uh, the native populations and the state in terms of those rights being upheld. I understand that the Ninth Circuit sort of recited a bit of that contentious history. Perhaps could you walk me through a bit of it or describe to me how this case came to be? I understand it it, it was originally filed, or at least it's, it's sort of its forerunner was filed in the early 1970s. Is that correct? That's correct. And, and yes, the, the Ninth Circuit did a good job of putting this case in its historical context, which really has been close to 150 years of conflict and, and resistance by the state to these rights as they exist off the current Indian reservations. Um, that conflict really bubbled up into civil disobedience and riots and violence in the 1970s, and it uh, quite perturbed the United States, which, acting as trustee for the tribes, filed suit against the state in 1970, and a number of the tribes then intervened. As the case was shaped up by then-District Judge George Bolt, uh, the goal of the, the case it was really to resolve all of the issues that related to the interpretation of the treaty fishing right. Um, the principal ones that he tackled initially were uh, the question of what the state's regulatory authority was over off-reservation treaty fishery and whether the tribes actually had an entitlement to a, a share of the harvest um, as opposed to simply a right to fish. Um, they had had their harvest largely preempted by a much larger non-Indian fishery. Okay. Could you describe to me the end result of that, that litigation, the original case? Well, Judge, uh, he both bifurcated the case. There were also environmental issues raised uh, in the initial tribal interventions, and he put those off in order to get to the more immediate questions of the harvest share and state regulatory authority, he ended up in, uh, broadly enjoining state regulation of tribal off-reservation fishing, uh, except where necessary for conservation of the species. He uh, recognized the authority of the tribes to regulate their own off-reservation harvest, which was really the, the birth of modern tribal governance in Washington, because to do that they needed uh, police, they needed tribal court systems, they needed biologists. Um, it really was a jump start to tribal governments. And he um, held in his the most well-recognized portion of his ruling that the tribes were entitled to up to half the harvest of salmon in Washington waters. Now, that sort of begs the question as to what would be what would happen if the number of fish available in, in those streams and waterways diminished. So if the tribe is entitled to half of the fish, but as a result of development or env environmental degradation, the stocks dwindled or disappeared, uh, the right to half of nothing is, is not, not terribly valuable. And I understand that the question of whether a guarantee that there would be fish in the waterways to fish um, was left open a bit by that uh, litigation generation ago. Is that correct? Yes, it was. And Judge uh, Bold left the case before ever getting to what he had labeled phase two, which included the, the question of uh, whether there is a a protection for the actual harvest, protection of the fishery from environmental degradation, and then the, also the question of whether the tribes are entitled to a share of hatchery fish. Uh, those issues were revived or, or brought back in front of the court in 1976. Um, the U.S. and the tribes filed what's called a request for determination, which is it's really sort of a complaint within this much larger overarching case in which uh, the district court retained uh, ongoing jurisdiction. And uh, that complaint proposed a very broad uh, standard. It asked for a declaratory judgment that the state could not do, um, the state had a duty to exercise its regulatory authority as well as its, uh, its own operations with its own property, not to degrade the salmon runs. 
um, and thereby deprive the tribes of uh, a moderate living, which was what the Supreme Court in 1979 said was the purpose of the treaties was to, and its fishing clause to protect the tribe's sustenance and their ability to attain a moderate living. Um, the district court's ruling in that phase two decision went up to the Ninth Circuit. There was a panel decision which recognized the right, but it uh, it modified it. It said that the right was a right to have, uh, or the duty imposed on the state was to take reasonable steps commensurate with its resources to protect the uh, the runs. Um, the tribes in the U.S. sought on banc review. Uh, the first en banc review held that the case wasn't ripe. There was a state request for a second en banc review, and the decisions were vacated uh, in an exercise of discretion. Um, the circuit court, while four of the 11 judges recognized that there was some duty to not degrade the environment and destroy the subject of the treaties, uh, didn't agree on what it was and held that it was a, a decision that had to be made on concrete facts in some later case. Sure. So no, no clear answer at that point whether those treaties indeed um, required a certain population or a particular duty to, to ensure that fish would be available. Um, as you say, the court left it open for a case in the future, which presented more of a, a concrete question. I understand that this case then, filed in 2001, did present more of a, a concrete question. What, what was that question? Well, it's a, a very concrete question in the form of 1,200 state culverts along state highways and, and forest roads that block or impede uh, the passage of salmon into um, more than 1,000 miles of salmon stream. And, and what the tribes were after, and the United States joined in that tribal request, were uh, two things. First, a declaratory judgment that the state has a duty not to operate its culverts in a way that deprives them of a moderate living from their fisheries and a declaration that that had been violated, and then uh, later an injunction that would be sought to remove those barriers. Okay. Would you mind just helping me visualize what these culverts look like? So they are concrete mechanisms that, that run underneath highways and roadways and through which streams and waterways pass? Is that what we're picturing? Yeah, and they take a variety of forms. I mean, the simplest is just a corrugated steel pipe that's, you know, buried under the road and the water runs through it. Um, there are concrete boxes. There's, there's a variety of shapes, but they, they impede salmon passage in a number of ways. Um, you know, if you crawl around in the, in the blackberry bushes on the downstream side of one of those culverts, you'll frequently see that because of the force of water coming out of a too small pipe, they've eroded the stream bed. And the culvert that was once at ground level or water level is now five or six feet in the air. It's what they call a perched culvert. That's a very common situation the fish can't get into. Um, they, generally speaking, it's because the culvert's size is too small, it increases the velocity of the water and the fish can't get through. There, there are other effects as well. Yeah, it does seem like it'd be a, a pretty difficult task for the fish to jump jump through a culvert of that height. The, the, the circuit court described the the d diminishment of the salmon population over the course of the last couple of generations and described it as relatively dire. Uh, is, is, the, um, is the number of, of fish, has it diminished very significantly? It, it's very significant. Um, it, you know, the, obviously we don't know exactly how many there were, but the estimates are that we're at about 10% of historic populations. And, you know, how dire the situation is, I think, depends in large measure on, on how you look at it. If you're just a tourist and you want to come see salmon, I can take you down to some navigational locks right near downtown Seattle now and show you salmon swimming through them. Um, but that run of salmon hasn't had a fishery on it in over a decade because they're not enough to harvest. So if you are like the tribes, after a run size that is substantial enough to actually support harvest activity and a way of life as fishermen, or if you're uh, another species in the ecosystem like, like orca whales that depends on enough salmon to actually eat, um, you're in big trouble. But there are runs uh, that are listed as threatened under the Endangered Species Act throughout the state, um, and the trends are not changing. They continue to be stagnant or moving downward. It certainly sounds like a dire circumstance. So then the district court ruled on, on this case, I believe, in 2013. Could you describe to me its ruling? I believe it, it um, made a rather broad pronouncement about what rights were guaranteed by the treaties. Is that correct? Yeah, there was actually a uh, summary judgment in 2007 where the, the court, based on really wholly undisputed evidence about the treaty 
history and purpose, the run status, the harvest reductions that those had occasioned, um, held that there was an implied promise not to significantly degrade the runs when the, the treaties were, were uh, agreed to. And it found that these culverts were, in fact, contributing to a substantial violation of the treaties. Uh, there was a, a lull of several years while the, uh, the parties attempted to agree on a remedy, and that didn't work. And in 2013, the district court issued an injunction. Um, it's pretty straightforward. There are four basic components to it. Uh, first is the court declares a duty to build future culverts in a way that will pass all species of salmon at all the times when they would naturally attempt to pass uh, through that area. Uh, second, it sets a default design standard, uh, which is either a bridge or what's called a stream simulation culvert, which you know the engineers and biologists could tell you more about than me, but it's basically you, you make a bigger culvert and you attempt to mimic the natural stream situation so that all those fish can pass. Third, the court sets schedules for correction. Um, the most important one is for the Department of Transportation, which runs the state highway system and has about 80% of these culverts. Um, they have to fix their worst ones by the year 2030. Um, and they have to fix all of them when they wear out and are replaced for other reasons. And then finally, fourth, the court um, implemented measures to prevent a recurrence of the problem. Uh, you know, streams are dynamic environments. They erode things. And culverts also wear out over time, despite being quite durable concrete. They do fail. And the court required that the, that the state do ongoing monitoring uh, of the situation, that it, uh, when it finds barriers in the future, it take action to correct them within a reasonable time, and then that it pass information along to the tribes about its correction programs so the tribes can help monitor the situation. Now, the state appealed this injunction, of course, which brought the case before the Ninth Circuit. And on appeal, the state had a, a few contentions, I believe. Perhaps the most significant one is um, their claim that the treaty created no duty to avoid blocking salmon barren streams with, with things like culverts. And thus, that even if, even if the culverts did diminish the salmon stocks to whatever extent, that in itself would not violate those treaties. You argued this case. What, what argument did you give to counter that contention? Well, really, that it's it's wholly inconsistent with both the history of the treaty negotiation and the way they've been interpreted for for more than a hundred years. If you look at the treaty history, it is quite clear that the tribes bargained for and got explicit promises that they would have ongoing fisheries to meet their needs forever. The Supreme Court, when it affirmed Judge Bolt's ruling, recognized that really that was the value in the treaties for the tribes. I mean, they got $270,000 in a blacksmith otherwise. It was not fair pay for, for uh, 5 million acres of land unless they really secured valuable ongoing fishing rights. Um, the way the treaties have been interpreted, Indian treaties in general, and these treaties in particular, has always looked beyond the naked text of the treaties, which is what the the state wanted to rely on it said well we read the treaty there's nothing there that talks about habitat but you have to look to the context um, and when you look at that negotiating context it it really is a pretty uh, silly notion that the tribes would have agreed to treaties that gave them nothing more than the right to dip their their nets in the water and bring them up empty so there's there's a treaty purpose argument and secondly specific case law i mean the there's a series of Supreme Court cases in the 70s from um, the Puyallup River south of Seattle here that, that ended up holding that neither party has a right to destroy the resource. Um, the fishing vessel case itself recognized an entitlement to an actual harvest keyed to what the tribes need for sustenance. And, and I guess most pertinently, there is a series of cases, both from the Washington Supreme Court and the Ninth Circuit, that deal with environmental protection in the context of water rights and have recognized that when the tribes reserved the right to take fish, they impliedly reserved sufficient water in those streams to support ongoing fish runs and fish harvests. That's really extremely analogous to our situation. Sure. And so it seems like the Ninth Circuit found convincing those uh, treaty-based and, and precedential arguments in, in this opinion. Uh, they were not impressed by the state's position, I will, I will say that, and it's quite <laughs> remarkable reading the decision. They, they described the state's view of the treaty purpose as remarkably one-sided, and that it would lead to, uh, to interpreting Governor Stevens' promises um, as cynical and disingenuous. Those are the, the circuit opinion's words. Okay. Now, 
I believe they made at least one other contention on on appeal, and that pertained to the issue of waiver, saying essentially that the United States, you know, a party to this this case as a trustee for the the tribes, had, had waived its ability to bring the suit because it hadn't done so earlier, because it had, I think, approved some state of Washington development plans that had, you know, employed these culverts. Is that what their argument was? Yeah, the um, the the federal government is involved in these culverts in, in several ways, presently and historically. A, a lot of state highway funding comes from the federal government, um, and they have to bless the designs that are used. Um, and in addition, uh, under the Clean Water Act, the Army Corps of Engineers has jurisdiction over a lot of these projects because they're placing fill in waters of the United States, um, and so they have to issue permits as well. And the state argued that, you know, we got these permits and the U.S. Highway Administration, Federal Highway Administration approved our designs. No one said anything to us about them violating the treaties. So we were within our rights to assume that uh, we weren't. And the U.S. has now waived its ability to claim otherwise. And uh, the court made pretty short work of that. There is very clear precedent both at the Supreme Court and uh, in this very case, U.S. v. Washington, that uh, waiver, uh, uh, federal officers can't waive the tribe's rights. They can only be abrogated by, by act of Congress. Then perhaps as one last-ditch effort to, to avoid this ruling, I think the state also essentially, they, they made it, with, I believe it was called a cross-request saying essentially to the U.S. government, hey, you've, you have some culverts in this state uh, under federal highways. Uh, you fix those first before you ask us to do so. Is, is that um, the other, other claim? Yes, it is. It's, I mean, it's essentially a counterclaim against the United States. And it's, it's interesting, the circuit didn't disagree that the U.S. has a comparable duty under the treaties. Um, and in fact, the U.S. has never argued to the contrary. I mean, they've been co-plaintiffs with the tribes throughout this case. They acknowledge that they also have a duty under the treaties with regard to the habitat. But this particular claim the Ninth Circuit rejected, as the district court had uh, on two grounds, uh, first was sovereign immunity, um, the state argued that this was really a recoupment claim, and the Ninth Circuit said, well, that, if you were after money damages, that would work, but this is, uh, you're seeking injunctive relief, and, and recoupment is not available for that. Uh, recoupment being a commonly recognized exception to, to sovereign immunity defenses. Um, and secondarily, the, the court said that the, the right that the state is seeking to enforce in this cross-request is the tribe's right under the treaties, and uh, the state doesn't have standing to assert that, and the tribes have not asserted any claim against the United States. So sure. that was that. Perhaps following up on that, you mentioned that the U.S. has acknowledged an obligation to, to remedy whatever uh, obstacles the roadways present to salmon. Is there any litigation uh, extant, or are there uh, any assurances that have been given that, that that will happen now that this litigation against Washington seems to be wrapping up? Uh, there is no litigation, and, you know, the U.S., um, I would not say they've agreed about what the, the remedy is or their duty to correct. They've agreed that they do have a treaty obligation. Um, okay. What they have to do about it has not been litigated or conceded. But the, the United States has attempted to increase funding. Um, the, you know, the most significant problem here is actually National Forest Service culverts uh, up in the mountains. Um, and they've done a, a, a lot of work to try and uh, fix those roadways. Um, but that is an ongoing issue that does need resolution. Then maybe describe to me some takeaways from this case. Obviously, the most immediate one is that the state of Washington must now, over the course of the next decade or so, fix its culverts. But it seems like the impact of the case is broader than that, that it, it asserts that this treaty signed 170 years ago now uh, guarantees the perpetual right for tribes to to fish and also to, for there to be fish in the waterways where they, they go to fish. So describe to me how broad this impact is. Well, it could be a very significant decision. I mean, it, it should be, I think, uh, not great news to people, not, not uh, a novel thought. Um, you know, common sense tells you that if someone is promised a right to fish, it, it might impose some limitation on your ability to destroy that resource and prevent them from actually harvesting. And the case law has pointed that direction for a long time, as I said. Um, it's, uh, it's hard to predict what will happen in particular cases. I mean, the, the circuit's en banc opinion in 80, 1985 in phase two was very clear that um, this is to be determined case by case, what the state's duties are, and that would go for, for other uh, non-Indian people as well. 
Um, there are an awful lot of factors that could influence uh, the result, um, you know, the magnitude of harm. Um, there's all the usual procedural issues of standing and, and whatnot, uh, causation questions. Um, the fact that, you know, non-Indians got some value out of this treaty as well. They were, um, you know, it was entered into in order to assure their ability to use the land that they were acquiring. And then with regard to the United States, of course, the U.S. has the ability to abrogate treaties. Um, so, you know, there, what will actually happen in particular cases is up in the air. And then uh, once a, re uh, a right is recognized under other facts, there's still the question uh, of what the remedy is and, and all the equitable powers of the court which obviously has to shape a remedy in an effort to vindicate the federal right that's being violated, but has to take into account the harms to others as well. So um, we're just going to have to see where it goes. Uh, the tribes certainly hope that it leads to an increased commitment by all of us to preserve what's really a, an incredible resource that defines the Pacific Northwest. As you say, the the profoundness of the ruling is yet to be seen and, and will be determined sort of on a an ongoing case-by-case -case basis. But it does seem like a very valuable precedential tool to cite this case and say, hey, you know, this court has said these treaties guarantee perpetual, this resource to maintain perpetually. Um, well, I certainly hope that that principle will, will now be accepted. It's been resisted for, you know, 40 years we've been litigating this matter, the tribes have, and um, it is a strong principle and it deserves strong recognition. Sure. I suppose the state has one last resort, and that would be to appeal to the, the United States Supreme Court. Do you see that potentially happening? And if they, they do appeal this decision, would you imagine there'd be a chance that certiorari would be granted? Um, well, you know, they've really got two chances. They've got the opportunity for en banc review again yeah, as well. Um, I hope that doesn't happen. I, I kind of agree with one of the state biologists who was quoted in the press as saying we'd be better spending our energy fixing this problem. Sure. Um, and it's, it's hard to predict what the state will do. Um, they're evaluating it and haven't said anything. I, I don't think the Supreme Court is going to take the case if the state asks. I mean, this is a, it's very important in the Pacific Northwest, but it's fundamentally a regional issue. There's no circuit conflict. Um, the facts are compelling. The order that the district court issued is really quite reasonable and tailored to minimize the impact on uh, the state. So I'm optimistic that, that this will be the end of it. Okay. Well, we'll leave it there and, and see if that's indeed the case. Mr. John Slett, congratulations again on this victory in the Ninth Circuit. Well, thank you, Brian. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Once more, that was John Slett, a partner with the firm Kanji and Katzen in Seattle, and the prevailing attorney in the Ninth Circuit case, U.S. vs. Washington. We'll move now to my conversation with David Balabanian from Morgan, Lewis, and Pacquias. I'd like to remind everyone listening that Mr. Balabanian is a, a regular column contributor, and you too can be as well. If you're interested in submitting any columns, please feel free to reach out to me at my email, brian underscore cardile at dailyjournal.com. Without any further ado, we'll now hear from Mr. David Balabanian. We're honored now to be joined by David Balabanian, a partner at Morgan Lewis and Bacchius in San Francisco, where he handles commercial litigation, including securities, energy, and antitrust cases. And he's held positions with the, the Bar Association of San Francisco and the California State Bar. And not least of all, is a regular column contributor to the Daily Journal. Mr. Balabanian, thanks for being on the podcast. Thank you for asking me. Appreciate it. So a couple of your recent columns, and I know you contribute them regularly, but a couple of recent ones have pertained to, to brief writing, generally speaking, not necessarily in the appellate context. But before we get into your thoughts on best brief writing practices, I think there's a, a worthwhile question to address at the top in terms of who should, should do the brief writing and perhaps on appeal, who should handle the, the brief writing in consideration of you know, who might have handled the writing in, at the trial court level. And then in addition to who might write the brief on appeal, who should handle the arguments? These are pretty important questions, uh, and I think there's a strong case to be made for having the brief on appeal uh, handled by someone other than the trial uh, lawyer. It's difficult sometimes to make that case with the client. The client will infer perhaps that uh, one is uh, they're getting double billed for work uh, that was already done, or that uh, the lawyer or the law firm have lost confidence in the trial lawyer and therefore bringing in the reserves. Uh, but that's not the case. Uh, the appeal is a very different project uh, than the trial. The issues are different. 
Uh, sometimes there is little or no overlap between the issues on appeal and the issues at trial. The issue on appeal is error and the standard of review and the standard of uh, error that has to be established, none of which really were tendered at trial and may not be issues with which trial counsel are particularly familiar. Uh, so having a someone with with appellate experience doesn't have to be a full-time appellate lawyer someone with substantial appellate experience preferably in the court uh, where the appeal is pending is enormously valuable as a way of homing in on the issues that are legitimately before the court of appeal which as i say are different in both a number and scope for uh from the issues that were addressed at trial sure now sometimes uh, uh people think well this is a d double expense but it really isn't because somebody is going to have to do that anyway uh and uh, someone is going to have to read the trial transcript and by the time the case comes up for trial particularly uh, in the ninth circuit many months will have passed since the trial so the chance that the trial lawyer uh, has a very clear recollection of exactly what was said is pretty low. In fact, even if um, the appeal takes case takes place much more uh, more promptly, there's chances are substantial differences between one's recollection of what happened and what appears in the transcript. That's true at depositions and it's true at trial. And having the transcript reviewed by another person uh, is likely to identify both opportunities and problems the lawyer, the trial lawyer, does not re recall. Uh, and a related consideration is that if there was a blind spot, and we all have blind spots uh, when you're handling the case at trial, there's a good chance that someone else looking at it will have their own blind spots, but they'll be different from yours, and they'll have the benefit of uh, what you saw and did at trial, plus the additional insights that may have occurred to them when they prepare the appeal. So it's really not true that there's a substantial additional expense. In fact, there may be little or no additional expense. But the chances of a p appeal that focuses on issues that are properly before the appeal court and are likely to win go up substantially. With regard to the argument itself, we see sometimes uh, a practice which I think is very uh, imprudent, and that is dividing up the argument. This is ostensibly done because different lawyers will have expertise with different part, uh, parts of the case. Uh, but more often than not, it's done for ego reasons or to satisfy a division of labor between the firms that are in the case. And it almost always ends badly. On the face of it, it's really kind of insulting to say to a court of appeal judges who have no background in the case and who are expected to master all the issues immediately uh, that the appellant or, or appellee have to bring in um, multiple lawyers to handle different issues because no one of them is competent to handle at all. But more importantly, uh, the division of labor almost always uh, founders at the hearing because the court is not expecting the case to be divided up the way the lawyers have divided it, even if they've given advance notice of their intention to do so, which is pretty rare. Um, and the court is sitting there with questions it wants to ask, uh, and if it's told, well, you know, Your Honor, that's not my issue, uh, but my colleague, Ms. Smith, here is going to take that up later after you've forgotten it, is really ineffective. And the thing gets hopelessly jumbled. The court is offended. It may or may not get back to the questions it wanted to ask. The division of time between the two counsel does not correlate with the division of time that the court had in mind in terms of the relative importance of the issues. Uh, so it turns out, uh, as I say, almost always to end badly. For better or worse, uh, the court is expecting one lawyer to be able to master the case, just as the lawyers expect each of the judges to be able to master the entire case. It's an interesting perspective because it does seem like it's a relatively common practice to, to divide up sections of a, a brief to be argued. I've, I've never seen it go well. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think it seems like good advice generally not to do things, uh, as you say, for potentially reasons of, of ego. <laughs> but rewind a bit to back when the brief is getting written. So you, you've written a couple of columns now in the last few weeks. The columns uh, were mainly addressed to briefs at the trial court level. Sure. Uh, uh, but some of the... Uh, uh, comments apply to the appeal as well. I, I spent a lot of time in one of the articles uh, lamenting the fact that, that lawyers tend not to make full use, or in some cases any use, of the most valuable bits of real estate in a brief, which is the introduction and the conclusion. And I advocated using the introduction 
not for a kind of routine recitation of the uh, legal standard applicable to the case or uh, prior proceedings uh, or other formalities, but to lead off uh, with an entertaining, interesting, engrossing story of what the case is all about, uh, presented in a balanced and fair way that doesn't reek too much of advocacy. Uh, advocacy like reweaving is best done uh, when it's invisible, uh, but gets the uh, court's attention and to some extent at least predisposes it towards uh, your position by at least by emphasizing some of the equities that it may be harder to advance in the course of the legal argument. That applies also to appeals, although with somewhat less force, because those equities, uh, those brute realities that the court ought to take into account in deciding who is wearing the white hat and who is wearing the black hat apply with less force on an appeal. Uh, The job of the appellate courts is not to achieve a just result. The job of the appellate courts is to apply a very limited set of criteria uh, to proceedings below. And the fact that this produces a result that the public generally would think is unjust or unfair or morally repugnant is really uh, not uh, nearly as relevant at the appellate level as it would be uh, at the trial court. So although I can, I would still advocate an introduction that positions the uh, court in the case, what happened, who were the parties, uh, why is the result either an acceptable or unacceptable one, one has to go much um, more lightly uh, on the equities than one would at the trial court. The conclusion is a different matter. I, so often we see briefs that uh, both at the trial and appellate level that simply contain a rote statement that for the foregoing reasons we should win. It's so common that I thought maybe it was in the rules somewhere, but I, I assure you I read the rules and it's not there. And this is the most valuable place to clear your throat and explain to the court all of the issues, summarize uh, again in a fair, balanced way uh, the key issues that the court has to decide and all the things it has to do to rule against you summarized it's checklist it's a summary one can't overemphasize the fact that courts are overworked and do not have nearly enough time to devote to reading the briefs so the conclusion is the place to sum it all up and say in order for you for me to lose uh you've got to decide a b c d and e all against me and any one of those uh is enough for me to prevail that, uh, I think, then leads to a related consideration, which is when you're writing the brief, uh, what, what's the order of the arguments? For the reason I just stated, you start off with your best argument, because once the court has decided you have to win on some ground, it's going to be a lot less interested in the other issues, and perhaps not interested at all in the issues on which you lose, because you only have to win on one. So devote your time, devote your space uh, to your best argument, um, and then, as I say, um, use it uh, to lead off uh, in your conclusion at the end. It seems like one issue lurking in the background here of maximizing your space is the idea that page limits um, on briefs seem to be more of a thing in recent years. How do how should attorneys regard page limits? Well, I remember when we had no page limits, uh, and we would go on for many, many pages. And when they first started to impose uh, limits of 25 or 30 pages, we were outraged. We thought, my God, I can't clear my throat in 20 pages. As it turned out, not only could you clear your throat, but you could clear away uh, a lot of verbiage and a lot of undergrowth, and our briefs got better and better. And frankly, if the limits were even shorter, uh, the briefs would be even better. I try very hard to not use the full page limits. That is a way of demonstrating to the court my confidence in my arguments and the fact that this is not a complicated set of issues. You can rule in my favor very simply. I don't need to take up all this space. Um, and if I can leave a page or two unused, uh, I think that that's a show of strength. On the other hand, uh, what we see a lot of are these briefs uh, where a, part, a party has crammed a 30-page brief into a 20 into 25 pages with uh, cheating on the margins, uh, uh, putting massive amounts of stuff, uh, substantive material in footnotes uh, and other trickery. Um, the fact that you were able to somehow get your brief within 25 pages doesn't mean that somebody doesn't have to read it. 
And that somebody, whether it's the judge or the clerk, is going to be really annoyed that you, in effect, um, crammed a overlong brief into the within the page limits, which now have to be read. And, and it is not uh, the reaction is not going to be a positive one. Okay. Now another recent column dealt with a related issue, and that citing case authority in your briefs and, and maximizing the use of authority. One point you mentioned is that the use of block quotes, perhaps because of page limits, has largely fallen into disuse. Is this change a, a good thing? Is there anything lost in the abandonment of this practice? Well, uh, block quotes uh, suffer from one serious defect. They're not read. Uh, so if there's something in a case that is really important, uh, identify it and uh, focus on it. And don't give the court a uh, 20 lines of um, legalese, uh, which, as I say, is un- unlikely to be uh, unread. In a word, uh, block quotes are for blockheads. But at the other extreme, and what is now in vogue, and I think this is traceable to some one of the uh, law school uh, handbooks that are put out uh, to control or advise on, on uh, citations, what we see a lot of today are citations of the following kind. There will be a statement of uh, argument or a proposition followed by a citation to a case, and then in parentheses written by the advocate, a paraphrase or summary or explication of the case, usually fairly short, just parenthetical. No context or little or no context will be provided. Uh, and the court has to take it on faith that that is an accurate paraphrase of of the case in its holding. This is very unconvincing, uh, particularly if the other side uh, has cited the same case with a different uh, parenthetical gloss. Sure. Uh, far better is to um, describe the case, I, uh, focusing on similarities of either fact or uh, circumstance that would make it particularly convincing to the court, not just uh, that it is authoritative, but that it's right, uh, and that the court uh, should follow it and should be happy about doing so. And and then, rather than paraphrase the case uh, with counsel's words, pick, extract from it a phrase, sometimes just a word or two, that embody the key point one wants to make and weave those in uh, to your account of the case. The fact that you have you've extracted actual words from the case will be far more convincing uh, than a lawyer's paraphrase and will hopefully focus the court on the issue that is the fulcrum issue in which uh, the case will turn, uh, as well as uh, having set the stage for doing that by explaining why the case bears similarity uh, to the case at bar. This is far more effective uh, than, as I say, the current uh, trendy practice of um, parenthetical paraphrases, which excite uh, suspicion and raise doubts rather than uh, carrying any particular conviction. Sure, so perhaps setting a bit more context to give the court reason to believe that it can trust what what you're using as authority there. Exactly. And in almost any case will have a key phrase uh, that you can feature prominently and will become the uh, the capstone of your brief. And in fact, you can even work it into your introduction so that that's the theme of your case. Uh, and then you'll, lo and behold, you have a case that actually uses that, uh, that phrase or those words in a, in a temporal or a factual setting that uh, resembles uh, the case at bar. Okay, now related to parenthetical sites or the, the use of, of string citations, just sort of several parenthetical sites connected, you have some advice in a recent column about the use of string sites, specifically that attorneys might tend to overuse them and that, for one thing, this could be redundant and take up space that could be better maximized, but also that could open up attorneys to certain vulnerabilities. What do you mean by that? Yes. I, I, the only justification for massive string sites is to just demonstrate that the, the question under consideration uh, is ubiquitous, that everybody does it, or that it's uh, come up a lot of times. And that is rarely the issue. It's not how often has this been cited, but why should it be followed? Why does this case look like the others? Why is this case controlling? Uh, and so just a series of string sites with parenthetical uh, comments, same, 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 
uh, doesn't do anything. The court is disinclined to give any particular weight to that. It's certainly not going to go and read all of those cases, uh, but uh, you can be really reasonably sure that uh, your adversary will. And somewhere in that lengthy string is a case that is not very good. Uh, either because the facts are different or because it's really old or because it comes from a court that doesn't enjoy any particular favor or deference um, or because it has a footnote that you didn't bother to read uh, that says something like, except when, uh, or is in some other way harmful. And that's the one case uh, that you're going to see featured in the answering brief of the other side. So find one good case that's controlling, that's persuasive, feature that, give the factual context within limits. You don't have to explain uh, who the plaintiff was and uh, where the action took place, but the salient facts that make it uh, both convincing and, and relevant. Uh, maybe if uh, there really is a, a dispute between courts, one, other, one more case uh, to uh, solidify the first, uh, but to go on uh, with four or five cases, uh, all bearing the parenthetical f phrase, same, 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 it's uh, unpersuasive and could be very dangerous. Sure. Yeah, as you say, it could open you up to some some, some counterattacks by the other side. Uh, you mentioned another area where there, uh, and you've referred to it earlier in, in our conversation, where authority can be placed, and that's in, in footnotes. But you say there's sort of a delicate balance in, as, in terms of how much authority you want to place into the footnote area, right? <laughs> Yes. Now, some judges uh, dislike footnotes so profoundly that they say they don't read them. I'm not sure that's true. Uh, but they certainly read them with less interest uh, than they do the text because uh, you have signaled that they are less important by consigning them to a footnote. Um, one thing that um, we see done a lot that that is, I think, quite counterproductive is the attempt to bury in footnotes adverse authority. Uh, if you do that uh, a couple of times, the court quickly gets the message that that's the place to look for problematic uh, authorities or arguments or difficult facts. Uh, and you uh, lose credibility with the court, um, uh, which is, after all, uh, the most important single criteria in writing a brief. I can't emphasize too much the fact that courts simply do not have the time to read uh, all briefs or perhaps even both briefs or all exhibits uh, to briefs or all authorities cited in briefs. You've spent months uh, or weeks preparing your brief, and the court, uh, under the best of circumstances, has um, a day or maybe even a few hours or in some very busy courts, uh, matters of minutes with which to try to master all the facts and all that you set forth. So um, maintaining credibility in a measured, fair way throughout your brief no misrepresentations of fact in law, no stretching of facts, no ham-handed concealment of unfortunate or potentially problematic uh, facts, straightforward, honest advocacy uh, are as important or more important than any actual uh, case citation or, or other authority uh, you might have at your disposal. In the end, it is your credibility. Uh, both in your brief and at the hearing, uh, which will get as be as important to the outcome as any other consideration. Okay, so we've talked largely about citing authority up till now, but there's another issue of, of, of finding the authority. And you write in, in the column that, that this process has changed a lot in recent years with the improved technology of legal research, where now an attorney can sort of use re, um, research tools like search engines, where as opposed to a generation ago, perhaps attorneys, attorneys would go through books and books and books and, and tons and tons of cases that may not have been exactly relevant. But you say that that trial and error that attorneys had to go through previously might have helped attorneys be sure that the case they ended up finding was the right one and that there could be something lost in... in the process now. Well, I certainly don't want to go back to the old days because I was here <laughs> at that time, and you're and you're right. We would spend a whole day there going through uh, cases of uh, using the key numbered system, which was uh, hopeless. Uh, reading masses of cases that could had no possible relevance to the case at bar. Uh, and I'm delighted that those days are gone. Uh, and I, I certainly don't uh, want want to spurn the use of the electronic uh, uh, search engines. 
But there is a, a caution one has to uh, keep in mind, and that is that the electronic uh, search is likely to surface uh, what um, younger lawyers like to call helpful language. Gee, look at the good language I found in this case, um, without going on to read it uh, in its entirety uh, to see whether or not it has a footnote, like I said, that says, um, except when, uh, or the facts are different in ways that uh, not only make it um, not helpful, but perhaps affirmatively uh, harmful. Uh, and that's the risk of the electronic discovery, finding uh, electronic um, uh, reverse searches, finding the good language, uh, which then uh, is uh, sometimes serves in lieu of actually reading the entire case. Find the good language, then read the whole case and make sure it um, is on balance a good case, that it has no um, landmines buried in it, um, and in fact you may find that the facts of the case are sufficiently similar to uh, the case at bar that you can actually make uh, even better use of the case uh, than citing the, uh, the so-called good language. Maybe one last one. In, in finding cases that may not be incredibly helpful to an attorney's cause or finding you know bad cases that, that array against an attorney's argument, what um, what's the best approach to trying to, to argue around or to handle cases like that that, that are unhelpful to you? Uh, there's really only one uh, proper way of handling them, and that is take them on, take them on straightforward. Uh, don't bury them in footnotes. Don't misrepresent them. Uh, find some way to demonstrate that they are, for one reason or other, not applicable, either because they're outdated, uh, maybe because they, uh, the facts are such uh, as to require a different outcome or to justify a different outcome. Uh, and when all else fails, um, explain that, uh, that they're just wrong, uh, that they shouldn't be followed, uh, that, that they're, uh, they're internally inconsistent, that they're not well thought through. I have to be very careful about doing that because judges don't like to hear their words like that applied to other judges. It's kind of a uh, 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 rubs them the wrong way, and they are reluctant to do so, even if the case comes from a a court that uh, doesn't uh, enjoy pr particular respect. Uh, that, that's, uh, that is the last uh, uh, tactic to be used. But there's no point pretending the cases aren't there. There's certainly no point concealing them, uh, because that will shred your credibility uh, more completely than anything else. Take them on. Sometimes uh, you, you're able, by demonstrating factual dissimilarities to turn what seems on its face to be a bad case into a helpful one by focusing on that factual difference, by demonstrating that that is the fact on which the case turned, and then uh, arguing that because the present case lacks that fact and may even uh, uh, exhibit a contrary fact, the apparently problematic or difficult case is really helpful. Uh, because the rationale of that case would, in the present case, mandate a different result. Uh, in doing that, it can be very powerful. Um, uh, you, you can't obviously make this up if, if the facts don't warrant it. But uh, taking a case uh, which is the other side thinks is a winner for them and uh, having it uh, appear in your brief uh, under a heading uh, that says that this case is uh, the one that really... Uh, carries the day for you is um, is something to be uh, to be sought if you can do so properly. Okay. Well, yeah, another generally applicable tip to take things head on. I think we'll, we'll leave it there, Mr. David Balabanian from Morgan Lewis and Bacchius. Um, really appreciate your time and your tips on, on brief writing strategy. Thanks so much. Thank you. program for July 15th, 2016 is complete. Like once more to tender sincere gratitude to both of my guests, John Sled from Kenji Katzen and David Balabanian of Morgan Lewis and Bacchius. I'd also like to thank you, our listener. 
are tuning in is much appreciated. And I have some thanks to tender as well to members of my production staff, including Helen Enriquez, Ellen Ireland, Nick Sonnenberg, Oscar Vialta, and of course our editor, David Houston. I'm Brian Cardile. I look forward to speaking to you next Friday. And of course, until then, our thoughts are with the victims and their families of the attack yesterday in Nice. Have a good week. Mm-hmm.